every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, and joining me this time uh, is Vicki Navarra, a contributor to Reading Joss Whedon and At Home in the Whedonverse, which I'm embarrassed to say I have, I have many, many many of the the Whedonverse books and somehow those are two of them that are not on my shelf I checked and I don't have those two I'm a terrible oh. person I'm so sorry well they're both really good and I, at home in the Whedonverse won the uh the Mr. Pointy see I don't know what's wrong with me I I will <laughs> I will get those immediately uh Vicky's also co-editor of the collection Geek Rock and Exploration of Music and Subculture uh, an author of a piece about the band Nerf Herder which some of you may have heard of um, in the forthcoming Rutledge Companion to Popular Music and Humor. She also happens to be a board member of the Comics and Popular Arts Conference that takes place every year at Dragon Con, uh, which pretty much guarantees her a guest spot on my other podcast, Gobbledygeek, at some point. So I just want you to prepare, brace yourself for that, Vicky. I will be coming back to you. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, how's it going? Thank you for joining me. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's Halloween. So all of the candy makes me very happy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I wish, um, I mean, the scheduling of this podcast has been crazy, but I could have planned it better. We could have been recording, I could have been recording a Halloween episode of Buffy on Halloween if I had done this right, but. Ooh, that would have been so tricky to do, though. I know, I know. I would have had to have paced myself, I would have had to go much slower so that the the episode Halloween would have had to wait till now, um, or I don't know how far into season four before we get the next Halloween episode. I can't remember, but anyways, my pacing was just off. I don't think anybody cares. You're, I'm not going to edit this today. You're not going to be listening to this on Halloween day. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but we are recording on Halloween. So just out of curiosity, are you uh, wearing a costume right now? I am well. I am wearing a T-shirt that has the Starbucks logo on it, but it says "Basic Witch." Okay, that, so that works. I mean, I'm at work. That's what I got today. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. That's more of a costume than I'm wearing, I guess. So I'm just wearing jeans and a T-shirt. I'm so sorry. You are dressed as podcaster. I am. I'm. Yes, I'm. <laughs> pretending I'm pretending to be a podcaster. I'm wearing my podcaster costume. Exactly. Um, all right. Uh, this is your first time on the show. So, and this is actually my first time meeting you. Although apparently our paths have crossed at Slayage at least twice before. Um, I know. So why don't you give me and our listeners a little background? What's your history with uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? 
I, when I was doing my master's degree in English, I worked at a hospital laboratory. And I was a processor, which isn't anything super awesome. It's basically being a male clerk for specimens. So people would come into the lab and hand me, you know, blood or whatever. And I would spin it down into the centrifuge or deal with it. Or sometimes people would come and hand me a leg, like seriously. And I would say, no, don't hand me the leg. Go put that in the refrigerator. I don't (laughs) want it. Thank you so much. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And one of my coworkers, who is super awesome, said, you have to watch this show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You would really love it. And I said, okay. I didn't watch a lot of TV at the time, amazingly enough. And I went home and I watched this Buffy show. And the first episode that I saw was Beer Bad. Oh, man. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this this is... I'm not entirely sure what this says that she thinks I would like this show, like what she thinks about me. So I went back and I said, that was really interesting. And she said, no, for the love of God, keep watching. I'm so sorry, but watch more. (laughs) Um, And then she ended up buying season one and giving it to me. So then I just started catching up and watching until I was fully caught up. Um, And it was on, but like television was always really difficult for me to get really invested in. I don't know why. Buffy is one of the few shows that I ever managed to, to watch. And it was at the end of season five, um, on the season finale. And I was watching it and my phone was completely blowing up because there was an elsewhere I was supposed to be. And I wasn't there. And I said, okay, I'm going to run out and go, I have no explanation for the majority of my choices in my life (laughs) and I'm going to go to where I'm supposed to be. And I'd been watching the show with my mom and I said, mom, let me know what happens. And so like an hour later, I get a phone call from my mom and she said, well, Buffy's dead. (laughs) Oh, geez. Mom, come on. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, no, you got it wrong. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah. So it was a little tumultuous to begin with. Yeah. Well, I hope you had a talk with your mother about how to how to break news like that in the future. Uh, and I, I know, right? I uh, I commend you on your willpower to go and be at your at the elsewhere you were supposed to be, like mid season five finale. That's nuts. It was it was because there was no point. Like everybody just kept calling my phone, so I yeah. couldn't watch it anyway. Like, because everybody thought they were really funny. So out of curiosity, the these people at this elsewhere that you had to be that kept calling you. um, I've never spoken to them since. Okay, okay. I was going (laughs) to ask. I I was going to. I don't remember what we were doing or what was so important. Like that's that's the part that's hilarious. I remember more that I was like because you know like everybody we all thought we were all super funny. Um, I remember more just like the ridiculous like jokes and harassment uh-huh. than like what it was that we had to go do that was so super important. Okay. Well, I was going to say, obviously, at the time, they weren't Buffy fans or they wouldn't have been doing that to you. But I didn't I didn't know if any of them had since gone on to become Buffy fans for which they should appropriately feel guilty once they got to the season five finale. And you could have said, see, see what you tore me away from. <laughs> I actually don't think any of them became Buffy fans. Well, 
which is I know maybe I shouldn't talk to them anymore. Right. I mean, I think I think <laughs> I think we're getting somewhere now. I think we're doing good work right now. Yeah, this is important stuff. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, before. <laughs> Before I take any further steps in destroying friendships of yours, let's uh, let me give the spoiler warning and we'll move on. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you listening at home have not already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, I highly recommend that you press pause on this podcast and please go do that right now. Um, you can catch up. I always say we'll sit here and wait for you. Obviously, we're not going to do that. So you can catch up. <laughs> we'll still be here. Uh, while they run off and do that, Vicki, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's do it. All right. So uh, today we're going to be talking about it's just two episodes today. And really, it's only one episode. So we... It's it should be pretty chill this time. We're only talking about uh, graduation day part one and part two. No no biggie. Um, these are episodes three twenty one and three twenty two, and they are the season three finale. So uh, go to you first. A pride of place as the special guest on this episode. What are your thoughts on graduation day? Um, one of the things I've written about, um, I guess more graduation day part part two. Um, but one of the things that I love about it is the mayor's speech. Uh-huh. I've, um, and this was in At Home in the Whedonverse. Um, the mayor's speech is one of the better speeches in Buffy. Like, one of the things that's really interesting about season three, one of my favorite seasons is season seven, and it's because of all the speechifying. But there's quite a bit of it in this season as well. And we see it in uh, The Wish and the prom and here. Right. And so if you look at these speeches from the standpoint of classical rhetoric, all of the, de- the delivery in these speeches, like the more proficient the speaker is at delivery, the more evil that they are, mm. which is an interesting thing that Whedon does. And when you get to season seven, all of Buffy's speeches take place in feminized spaces. It's all, it's either like, in the kitchen or in the parlor, like the living room. So she creates this domestic rhetoric and you can only speak and have a voice and agency um, from a feminized place in the Buffyverse, which is pretty cool. But I always love looking at the mayor's speech because for somebody that's had a hundred years to work on his speech, he still needs note cards. Yeah. I thought that was funny too. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't even get to finish his speech. He's like, well, I had this whole bit about civic duty, but I'm not going to get to it because, Oh no, I'm going to ascend. Yeah. Like, like you couldn't have timed that better in the hundred years you were planning. I'm telling you, we, 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 I just had this conversation about, uh, could have uh could have planned my schedule better and covered the episode of halloween actually on on halloween um schedules are hard is what i'm saying and i i I get where the mayor's coming from i've had a hundred years to plan this podcast and i still mess everything up so (laughs) i still use note cards um i mean you're not gonna turn into a giant snake demon thing i mean are you i make no promises (laughs) i make no promises um for all you know, I already am a snake creature. Um, 
Wow, God, where the hell do I go from there? Um, no, it's interesting that you point out the the more uh, I can't remember the word you use, but basically the more sort of literate and verbose that a character is, the more evil they are. Um, I guess not always evil, but certainly the more articulate characters tend to be the ones that are um, that are others or whatever that are that are outside of the Scooby gang or they are either antagonists or foils or whatever. Even Giles initially kind of was positioned that way since he was the the brainy librarian. Um, he wasn't. I mean, it was very brief, but for a brief time, he was the adult authority figure, not one of the cool kids. And the more he starts using the Scooby language, Mm-hmm. the more he he kind of repositions himself like like the 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 person that has the most like polished speaking skills or or delivery is really the master in the alternate universe that cordelia wishes up in the wish mm-hmm. and he gives his speech in the the blood factory thingy but he's totally commanding he moves around the stage he's got good presence he's got good arm gestures he does not have any note cards. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, like man. all the vampires flock to him and he's got them all riled up. Like, like, yay, blood factory. Woohoo. Let's do this. Like, this is the new revolution. And he's arguably the most other than, I guess, the first, but the most evil that we see. <sighs> wow. Um, they also share, I, this is a thing that Whedon does with all kinds of characters, both good and evil, but, um, two traits, uh, that the mayor and the master both share other than the, the M name, which just dawned on me, uh, is that, I mean, they're both, uh, like eloquent and verbose and, and articulate, but they're also very, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, irreverent or whatever, like, they mix this um, very educated speech with a lot of folksy humor or, or whatever. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but like the master in particular, I mean, the mayor obviously is the humor of the mayor is that he is in a position of authority. He's obviously meant to be the big bad of the season. He's super evil, but he also talks like someone from a fifties TV, like a dad off a, 50s sitcom yeah um but the mayor also had the very elevated speech and he was he was a a figure of worship and authority clearly but he also would occasionally just make uh i don't know i can't even think of any wisecracks that he made but he also was able to make jokes in an almost sort of scooby vernacular kind of way but it all did have like like a, ni- a very kind of like 1950s feel, like very like 50s dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's very much what he is to faith. Yeah. yeah. Is like the, the, like the ultimate father figure. Yeah. And in case anyone before this, in case anyone questioned how real that was, um, again, on this rewatch, I'm learning, I, I'm, learning or relearning things that I had completely forgotten. And I, I always thought that faith and the mayor had a lot longer period of time to be a family unit 
than they did. It's really only a small handful of episodes where she is his surrogate daughter. Uh, but in that short period of time, there's a, a lasting impression made on on us as viewers of the relationship between the two. And these, the, I almost said this episode, these episodes, Graduation Day, is where we, I, I think it goes beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has genuine twisted yes but like genuine actual care and and love for faith and i i think these episodes really hit that home like he gets i'm looking through um my notes now and i i made my notes a little bit differently this time watching um because i'm just trying out new techniques of reading things okay um so i was just writing down like quotes or or moments that really jumped out at me um but the mayor got Faith the pretty pink dress right. for the Ascension. Um, and Faith says, it's not me. And the mayor replies, nobody knows who you are, not even you, Little Miss, seen it all. The Ascension isn't just my day, it's your day too, your day to blossom. And show the world what a powerful girl you are. No father could be prouder. Yeah. And it's just little moments of like that, I think, that really solidify that relationship here. Um, yeah. And also he, uh, like in episodes leading up to this, there were, he obviously showed care and concern and he did kind things and he said kind words about her. But there were also, every once in a while, those would be subverted by him saying, uh, like I, again, can't think of an example. I don't remember an exact quote, but he would say something sweet to her, like offer her a cookie or whatever. And then he'd also make an implied threat about, please don't fail me or whatever. So he was showing signs of being a father figure to her, but there was always possibly for some viewers, there may still have been some question of, yeah, but he's evil, right? Like, I mean, he's, he is still the bad guy and he, he's not really her loving father, but in these two episodes, I think we see there's the scene you just talked about and the, the speech that he gives her, which I believe was genuine. And then when she's, uh, when she's in the hospital, when she's in her coma, he is actually distraught. Yes. Like I, that um, wasn't performative. Throw down. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't performative. He was genuinely upset about that. And he, he, could potentially have sort of messed up his carefully laid ascension plans just because he was worried about uh, Faith. Because previously, when Faith first goes to him, he says something like, like they have like some, some banter and a little meet and greet, and then he just goes, all right, now let's talk about killing your little friend. Right. You know, and he's much more, that, that evilness is, is definitely much more apparent. And here it, I mean, he does, you know, ascend and all, but it's before that he's much more concerned with faith. He's calling her like, you know, my little firecracker. Mm -hmm. um, he's throwing down with, with Angel in hospital. He goes after Buffy in the hospital and tries to suffocate her. Yeah. And Faith, uh, in her scenes with the mayor, Faith becomes increasingly sort of childlike whenever she's interacting with him. Uh, she so you talked about the scene with the with the dress uh, and she's very shy and uncomfortable in that. And uh, she behaves in a much more uh, sort of juvenile young lady way. 
uh, in that scene. And then she sort of gets like giddily excited when he says, you know, go put on your street clothes and I'll buy you an icy. Um, and then when she's talking to him later about uh, how she was always the only one of her friends that was brave enough to jump off that 40 foot rock at the quarry, yeah. that whole thing, um, even though she wasn't speaking in a, in her higher childlike voice register and she wasn't she wasn't acting youthful there was very clearly in in Eliza Dushku's performance there she was very clearly a a teenager sort of seeking the approval or the the she was she was looking for support and approval from her dad basically and scene. she asks him um you'll still need me right yeah after the ascension and he says i believe he says always mm -hmm. which just has you know lots of you know harry potter echoes now which is weird it's weird to hear the mayor say always <laughs> <laughs> see now you're just now you're just poking fun at the fact that i'm a loser and haven't read harry potter so i you didn't catch that to. i know it's i know it's so good i know i know i'm a terrible terrible you'll get person. there terrible person someday um so it's right. interesting, like, like looking, like rewatching it this time and talking about the mayor and the mayor's father figure, because I felt that there was a lot more overt commentary this time watching it on masculinity in general, too, that I thought was really interesting. Like you have the mayor's performance and it is like. He does come across as this like 1950s kind of like evil leave it to beaver father mm -hmm. um and you've also got xander and anya and anya is saying things to xander trying to convince him to bail on all of his friends and don't stay here come with me you don't want to be around for the ascension it's terrible and she's trying to come up with things to entice him and xander looks at her and says Yes, men like sports, because she's like, men like sports, I'm sure of it. And he says, men like sports. We like to eat of the beef and look at the bosoms. Mm -hmm. Like, you've spent a thousand years avenging wrongs, and this is all you know about men, seriously? Yeah. And there's another place, too, where Wesley starts um, coming back and trying to tell Buffy, like, things. And Buffy says to him, I love it when you take charge. You man you. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, and Buffy's always pretty overt, but it just seemed to be so much more this time. Um, all at once in this episode. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because my, I, again, my biases, I don't bother to hide my biases on this podcast. I adore Wesley. So I, I read that same scene. Um, I was looking at it more from the perspective of, um, she's being less like overtly uh, j just brutally critical of Wesley like she's yes she's making one of her snide quips um, but pre prior to this it had always been much more dismissive and condescending uh, whereas here it's a little it felt a little more jokey to me because and he even got to respond by saying uh, is that a yes it's so hard to tell like he wasn't immediately deflated by what she said. He was almost, almost in on the joke. So I, I love all those moments where it feels like Wesley is 
kind of being included in the group. Uh, he never really is, but that's. I think he gets more included, but I, I love that because I think he gets more included in part two because she says something about how all he can do is scream like a girl. Right. And then he makes a comment back like, I'll go and do this thing unless, of course, you want me to just scream like a girl. Right. And gets to like, and I think that is like one of the, the few times we get to see Wesley kind of sass back. Yeah. Oh, God. Wesley, I love you so much. Um, he is great. Oh, dang. What was I going to say? Oh, so about Anya, um, I, I've spoken on the last couple of episodes as we're getting closer and closer to the end of season three and the beginning of season four, which also brings us the premiere of Angel, the series. I've been talking about how how clear it is that uh the character angel is being positioned to move out of the story and uh, Cordelia eventually, I felt like pretty late in the process, like only maybe only the last couple episodes of the season. Did it really become maybe clear to viewers that, Oh, they're, they're kind of, I, I guess maybe we're getting close to being done with Cordelia. She's kind of being pushed further and further to the outskirts. Um, the writers were, I, I assume, recognizing the fact that all right angel's going to get his own show cordelia is going to go with him so we kind of need to bring in a cordelia replacement and emma caulfield as anya is not exactly it's not a one-to-one anya is not cordelia but she certainly fills a a cordelia type of role in the story going forward um and this this episode or these episodes is where she I guess you could say officially kind of becomes part of the group. She kind of gets brought into the group. She gets brought into the sanctum sanctorum of the library uh, and, and gets to provide crucial information to the group. I don't remember. I don't think we, is she in the group that fights the mayor at the end? I can't. I, I don't think she is. I think she does. Bail. I don't think we see her at the end. Okay. Um, yeah, Cordelia is there, obviously, but yeah, I'm scanning my notes. I would, I would have made a note of that if she was there, but yeah. So she, she was brought into the inner circle enough to be in the library and give information, but I guess she didn't. She still hasn't joined enough that she was actually participating side by side in the fight. But because I think, um, I think I could be totally wrong about this. Um, that they reference back to that at the end of season seven, that she's staying this time. Oh, okay. Okay. But I could be misremembering. But yeah, I think she does. She, she gets to be in the, the inner circle and she provides lots of useful information and then she bails. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but she does get set up. Right. To fill that, that void. And I, I don't know if it really struck me as kind of weird until this actual second as I'm about to bring this up. But not only is Anya... Okay, so at the, at the... Anya was never my favorite character. I didn't dislike her in any way, but she just was not high on my list of favorites. But on, at the most recent Slayage, someone, and I cannot remember who off the top of my head, gave a great paper, a great presentation about the character of Anya and... Um, 
how important the character's growth over the series and how important she becomes by the end. And it brought me to tears. It was wonderful. So I'm not trying to diminish or, or if, I don't know, I'm not scoffing at the inclusion of Anya in the cast at this point, but it is kind of weird that not only is Anya being introduced here as a potential in air quotes replacement for Cordelia when she leaves the show, she's also immediately and almost out of nowhere <laughs> uh, introduced as a potential romantic interest for Xander. Yeah. So I, I don't know why it never dawned on me how weird it was that not only are we losing the, the, the mean girl aspect of Cordelia, uh, but she's obviously not in a relationship with Xander anymore. So the new Cordelia they enter, they introduce will be in a romantic relationship with Xander. That's kind of weird. That is kind of weird. It's like they must always have like some sort of like female interest for Xander just to make sure that nobody could think that he could be gay. I mean, because there's enough like weird, like gay jokes or things that happen there that they they feel really compelled to make sure that that line is drawn because, you know, men. Mm. I mean, they do the whole bury your gaze trope in in these episodes. Yeah. One of the few like named established characters that we see shuffle off this mortal coil by the end of graduation day two is, is Larry. So I guess, I guess they Larry your gaze, not bury your gaze. That's terrible. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I apologize profusely. (laughs) Um, yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. And he was the one, I, I mean, as, as the out character on the show at this point, he was the one that always got to have those really awkward interactions with Xander where Xander was clearly not uh, very PC at dealing with his homophobia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So let's see, scrolling through my notes. Where else can we go? Um, There was something, there were two things that I noticed in this, in part one that I hadn't noticed before. Mm -hmm. And Xander says to Buffy, when Buffy decides that she's going to uh, go kill Faith to save Angel, Mm -hmm. um, Xander says to her, I don't want to lose you. And she says, that's not, you know, you're not going to lose me. I I won't get hurt or something. Yeah. Yeah. And Xander goes, that's not what I meant. And then there's this scene where she goes into the bathroom to like look at her reflection in the mirror mm-hmm. as she's making this, you know, decision to go and kill Faith. And then you see like angels like writhing, um, you know, with, with poison right. and Faith uh, working out her aggression, like punching on the, the punching bag in her apartment. And when Buffy goes into the bathroom to look at the mirror, there's a sticker on the mirror that says lost. I, okay. (laughs) I saw the sticker and I, I just barely registered that it was letters. They were like little monster shapes or whatever. And as the scene Uh was fading, I was like, wait, 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 those were letters, but I didn't go back and look. So that's fascinating. Um, I also took special notice of that bathroom scene because uh, 
where where Buffy goes from that scene is directly she goes to confront Faith, and this is uh, again another another sort of rediscovery uh, that I have come to on this rewatch is that almost the classic the iconic Buffy look at this point, at least to a certain section of the fandom is the, the black top and the red leather pants. But I think this is the first time we see it. Like, I think this is where that look originates. I may be mistaken. Somebody can correct me if we've seen it before, but I thought this was the first time we'd seen it. And it is the, okay. So it almost looks like, Buffy, I mean, as I'm saying this, maybe it sounds obvious because Faith actually says, look at you all dressed up in big sister's clothes. I mean, it's it's Buffy almost becoming Faith. She's kind of putting on the colors of Faith, basically. And so, and I knew that going into that scene, but this was the first time that I read that bathroom scene in in the light of this is Buffy. She's like wash she's she's cleansing herself in this in the sink and looking at herself in the mirror and as she turns away and the scene fades to black um she we see her like lifting off her shirt as she's getting ready to don this new warrior's garb or whatever well and i had to i went through pause and like slow down and rewind and all the things on my my blu-ray player to make sure that this is what i was seeing but faith's shirt uh-huh. has a graphic on it uh-huh. and the graphic is a sacred heart being pierced with a sword <laughs> okay right wow like either somebody in wardrobe was like super genius <laughs> or that's... Like I have to see that as intentional. Oh yeah, that, there's no way that wasn't intentional. Yeah, so, I mean, dang, that's pretty amazing. Um, like I said, I have. I had never noticed it before, and I was just like, I'm still not even like entirely sure what to fully do with that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, man, that I I want to start exploring that, but I'm afraid I'll sound like an idiot. So, like I said earlier, I have tons and tons and tons of scholarly uh, Whedon-y books on my shelves. Um, I've got like 16 of them sitting on the table right here in front of me right now. I I'm again, once again, I'm a terrible person and haven't read all of them. So I feel like maybe this is a detail. Certainly, this is a detail that somebody somewhere has explored before in one or or more of these books in front of me. Someone has possibly written about this before. I haven't read I it. I tried looking for it, and it is one of the things that you know I love about about the Whedon verses and all of the scholarship is because it's like we're a prolific bunch of people. Yeah. Like we really we love our things and we write about that love and it's awesome yeah so i'm not sure because there's so much i haven't read everything either i mean i want to i want to read everything all the time there's there's a lot (laughs) there's a lot but it is so i don't know but i just i just love this um and there's so much about faith that i love anyway yeah and this whole scene is i mean and the this whole scene is amazing. And then they have um, the dream. Ah, the dream. 
Ah, the dream. Okay, but hang, yeah. hang on, hang on though. Before we get to the dream, uh, let's talk a little bit about the actual fight, the Faith and Buffy fight. Um, because, so, so first of all, I want to say, if any listeners out there um, have either written themselves or are aware of any writings that explores the notion of uh, Buffy is now dressed like Faith, and Faith is wearing a shirt that has uh, a heart being pierced <laughs> with a sword. Yeah. Like, and it's the sacred heart. Like, okay, this yeah. is like, this is like the love of Jesus. Like, this is like the ultimate faith. Like, they were like, because I started like googling a little bit, um, because I'm not a Christian, so I don't really know right. all of the the things. Um, but the the devotion to the sacred the sacred heart started in medieval times. Mm-hmm. Like this is a pretty solid part of the faith here. So my first part of the faith. Ha-ha. So <laughs> so my my first very very amateur. Uh, this is my immediate thought. So I'm sure it's wrong. But but I was talking about you know Buffy's wearing Faith's skin when she goes to confront Faith, and you point out that shirt. And so my first thought was, oh, that's a reference to Buffy stabbing uh, Angel, the love of her life, her her sacred heart, stabbing him with a sword. Uh, Ooh, so I was like, nice. wait, so Faith is wearing a shirt that kind of references her as Buffy and Buffy is dressed up as Faith. This is so weird. Um, anyways, I don't know what to make of that. We're gonna, we don't have time to cover that here, but that's fascinating. Please, listeners, let me know where where to go from here. What do I need to read next? Um, so in that fight, uh, there's the line. Uh, Faith gives the line, uh, says, give us a kiss. As they're like right up on each other, and Eliza Dishku has said in interviews that she, she deliberately—I don't know how much of it was in the writing—but that she deliberately played up the sort of sexual tension between her and Buffy. Um, so there's the whole "give us a kiss" line, and that immediate that leads to the first punch. That lead—that's when the punches start to fly. So not only is that just kind of a, a typically f- funny. Segue in a Whedon-y style from uh, from from humor and and maybe sexual tension into violence. It's, I also read that as a larger comment, a larger commentary on how romantic relationships, which we we could discuss if there is an element of a romantic relationship between Faith and Buffy, but romantic relationships in Buffy in Buffy's life in particular always involve violence. And I think Spike comments on that later. Yeah. Like that all of her, like all of her romance, like, and all of her like sexual relationships, like tend to have a violent or dark or monster sort of element to them. And he says that it's part of being a a slayer, I I think. Uh I mean, her, yeah, her power comes from darkness. Um, I guess I'm sort of backfilling here by saying that if we, if we agree and acknowledge, as you just said, Spike points it out later, if we agree from later on in the series, it's, it's proven time and again that Buffy, in Buffy's life, romance equals violence. Mm-hmm. Then this scene here is, I, I mean, it's not really, but it's an amusing sort of way of acknowledging the romantic tension between Faith and Buffy because... There's the overtly sort of sexual give us a kiss, which is followed by Buffy 
punching her in the face, which metaphorically is kind of how Buffy kisses people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Um, yeah. So that leads to the fight that leads to the great cliffhanger that uh, drove so many people crazy, especially since the second part of this was delayed. Uh, the cliffhanger with, uh, you did it, you did it, B, you killed me. And, um, uh, Faith riding off into the sunset, unconscious and comatose and bleeding in the back of a truck, which brings us to yep. the, which brings us to the dream, the, the beloved dream sequence. So let's talk about the dream sequence. Let's talk about the dream. I'm going to my, my notes. Um, I have to backtrack a little bit too okay. but when um because actually with what you were just saying about the give us a kiss and the punch uh-huh. like that is almost exactly what happens with her and angel like she's like drink from me drink from me and he's like oh yeah. no i would never do it so she just punches him in the face and that is a super sexual scene guys guys come on <laughs> That scene was okay. So I, I'm I'm an acknowledged. I I grow to love the character of Angel. I've always liked, but have issues with Buffy. But I've just never been a particularly a, a, a Buffy and Angel shipper. So so I acknowledge the the massive like sexual release of of all of the unresolved sexual tension between Buffy and Angel that comes in that scene. But good grief. That scene yeah. was a little bit over the top. It's a lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that scene. Where is it in my notes? How did I how did I word it in my notes? Damn it! Um, I said the sexual overtones as Angel feeds from Buffy are, and then I kind of pause and I'm like, pretty there. <laughs> they're they're pretty there. Um, I mean, like Buffy. There's the slow. Okay, so he embraces her. He penetrates her with her fangs, which is which is demonstrated on camera, which we don't mm-hmm. see very often on the show. Um, like the camera pulls in and shows his teeth sinking into her. Uh, there's the slow motion collapse in each other's arms. Then Buffy like reaches out to in what a normal sex scene on TV or film would be uh, the woman like reaching over and clutching the sheets. But of course it's Buffy. So she reaches over and crushes a metal urn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and And then she, she like, kicks out in ecstasy at the moment of whatever uh, and destroys the table. Yep. Um, it is, it is not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not subtle. Um, I mean, it was a well shot scene. And if I were someone who was like deeply invested in the romance between those two characters, I'm sure I would have gotten a lot more out of it as it is. It's a well shot scene. I think it's an appropriate payoff for the tension that's built up between the two characters. Um, it's, it's plot wise. It's interesting. Like she, she went to get faith and she couldn't, her faith didn't allow herself to be fed to angel. And so Buffy has a, she has to find some way of saving angel. I don't know. It's a great scene. I just, my read of it is, Jeez. <laughs> okay. That just happened. Like, I think I probably would have liked it more the first time I watched it, but Buffy and Angel are also not my favorite. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. Good, good for them. 
Good for them. Um, I think my, my, I don't know what my Buffy and Angel feelings are going to be going forward because it might actually be worse. Like my, my sort of uh, disdain might be too strong a word, but I'll just say my disdain for the Buffy and Angel ship going forward may possibly be worse because on this rewatch, I genuinely feel like the show is doing a good job of closing that door. Like, I really, I really feel like the show did, did an admirable job of saying they loved each other and it was passionate and emotional, but it can't be. And it's just unfortunate that they continue to tease it for the rest of the series. I agree. Um, Cause one of the things like, cause I like angel on angel yes. so much more than I like angel on Buffy. Yeah. And I feel that when there's crossovers or when that comes back up on Buffy, it just like, yes, I know. Yeah. No, you're not over it. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Like I was thinking about, um, what was I thinking <laughs> uh, about angel and spike? Um, recently and faith and everybody has done like angel spike and faith have all done these horrible things Mm -hmm. and for angel and spike of course it's gone on much longer than it has for faith Um, and they all have different very different approaches to um, seeking redemption yeah or how they go about and deal with life in general one of the things that I think like consistently bothers me about Angel is he like it's very much a self punishment. Right. Like like Spike accepts what he's done and moves on and continues to do, you know, good work to make up for that for the most part. Um, eventually. Right. Um, Faith eventually like has an epiphany and a revelation and some, and you know, changes, but Angel doesn't really allow himself to ever change. Like if he really wanted to say, I'm, you know, I did all these terrible things and I really need to atone for it. And also I keep having this problem with my soul going away. So why don't I get it permanently and go see the dude that Spike saw? Uh, Matt, like, <laughs> I tell you, that conversation is coming, guys. Listeners, just just be prepared. <laughs> At a certain point, this podcast <laughs> will catch up with that plot line in the shows, and I will have some words to say about like, that. Like, all of his choices are always so interesting to me, because I feel like, like the character of Angel gets... he His character a lot of times seems to get sacrificed for his plot purpose. Yeah. Angel's an interesting, I, okay. I, I don't want to derail us too much. I'll just say, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'll just say Angel's an interesting character in that I have long maintained that the vast majority of, uh, of shows of long form fiction, the quote unquote hero, the quote unquote main character is oftentimes not the one that I am most interested in. It's usually their friends. It's usually the sporting cast. Sometimes it's it's the villain. But the the protagonist of a story is usually kind of the the boring one or whatever. It's usually not the one that I invest the most in. Angel uh, 
at a certain point on his own series, I feel like the writers acknowledge that. Like, he still gets to have his hero's journey on his show. He still uh, takes two steps, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Like, there, there's still mm-hmm. a character arc for him. But I feel like the that series allows for the ambiguity or allows for the 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 shading where they acknowledge and maybe even he as as the character himself acknowledges i'm not the most important person in this story um yeah i don't know i have so much to say about angel when we we get to that show (laughs) but anyways so the dream sequence um before before we even before we even get to the dream sequence in that fight um faith says that line that i i quoted a second ago about all dressed up in big sister's clothes which i mean obviously that was in the moment that was meant to call attention to the fact that buffy is dressed like faith now um it's also it's not part of this dream sequence but we could we could bring it in here and talk about how that's another possible sort of hint or reference or whatever to the that dawn is coming yeah so I, I I have no idea if that was intentional or not. It probably was. I think everything on the show is probably intentional. But um, anyways, yeah, your thoughts on the dream sequence. Um, it's I like there's so much that I just like like about it. Um, I It's such a cool scene and it's so well done. I like that it happens when they're both in the hospital. Right. Like right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Like after they've both been brought in, they both have blood loss and they both have this weird um slayer mind meld situation. <laughs> One of the things that I like and this was going in with like, you know, just noticing more um a commentary about masculinity is it starts with the cat. Yeah. And Buffy says, who's going to look after him? And Faith says, it's a she. And aren't these things supposed to take care of themselves? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had forgotten that uh, the cat was, well, as I was watching the scene, I was like, I mean, obviously the cat is supposed to represent. Well, no, not obviously. I was thinking, is the cat supposed to represent slayers in general, or is it one of them in particular? And then we get just that very brief flash where the cat turns into uh, Faith in the hospital bed. So I was like, oh, okay, no, the cat is the cat is Faith. Um, but so the line that has probably been dissected, I would say this d- dream sequence and this line in in particular has been has gotten more attention than maybe anything else other than Restless. Yeah. Uh, it's the line miles to go. Little Miss Muffet counting down from seven, three Oh, um, so go ahead. What, what, what do we know about that? I, it stumps me every time. Okay. Like it really does. I really like it. It sounds like, cause it sounds like a dream. Yeah. It's got fairy tale in it. Uh huh. Like, I like that. Um, I like the countdown. The it sounds ominous. It, it does. I mean, this is dream sequences get a bad rap. I feel like nowadays uh, there's a certain segment of the population that has decided they're just tired of dream sequences. They're overused or whatever. I feel like this is what I, I still love dream sequences. Um, 
but I feel like this is one of the better ones because it's, it's just, well, f first of all, it's a very specific kind of dream sequence. It's the two slayers having a mind meld really. Um, but it's just sort of ambiguous and, and obscure enough to feel like something that, uh, a Slayer's shared prophetic dream might be the countdown from seven, three, zero, you know, counting down from seven, three, zero. That sounds like something that means something. Mm -hmm. we, we just don't have the information to figure out what that is yet. Um, and she says a lot of stuff that's important uh -huh. and meaningful, like, like that the human weakness never goes away. Yeah. Like, there's real information that's delivered in this stream too. Yeah. Um, I, again, tons of books, haven't read them all. Um, I know for a fact that uh, this line, the miles to go, little miss Muffet counting down from seven, three, Oh, has been dissected by dozens and dozens and dozens of scholars. Um, I don't know what the final, like, I don't know what the consensus. I apologize if you can hear my cat in the background. She <laughs> she cannot let me do a single podcast without uh, making her presence known. Um, anyways, that was why I really like thought it would be a good idea if I was in my office because I have a dog. Okay, well, and he gets really barky. She's she's about to get very vocal as she tracks <laughs> tracks me down. Anyways. Um, I don't know what the final consensus is on all of the meanings of like every word of this, of this dream has been analyzed. Um, hey baby, come on. <laughs> but I, it's one of the things too, where because faith says, just take what you need. Oh yeah. No, I'm ready that I feel it almost gives you license to do what you want with reading the dream. Yeah. Well, I have a, I have a read about that in particular, the stuff and taking just as much as you need, but like specifically the seven, three, zero, I think I, I correct me if I'm wrong listeners or, or Vicky, I think Joss has said he intended that to be a reference to two years. Like he had a vision for what would happen in two years. However vague or concrete it was, he was thinking of two years and seven thirty was supposed to represent two years time. But I believe, I think maybe it's in Restless, um, she wakes up from a dream and the clock, or either wakes up from or wakes up in a dream, I can't remember, and the clock, she looks over at the clock and it's 7.30. Um, I, I don't know. Th this is one of those uh, dreams that's been dissected by so many smart people and I am not up on what all of it means, but... What you were just talking about with uh, all the stuff and Faith saying, oh, it's this isn't mine. This is for you. Uh, Buffy says, well, I can't I can't use all of this. And Faith says, just take what you need. So the obvious read for that would be because in the background is all are all of Faith's weapons and all that stuff. And the obvious read of that is she's going to need all those weapons when she has to equip her army of high school graduates in a little bit. But the, the read that I have on that, and maybe other people have done this as well, but my read is that is faith, or at least some part of faith telling Buffy to incorporate as much of faith in as much of faith's like methods, her strengths, her beliefs, her attitudes, what makes faith the slayer she is take as much of that as you need to get you through 
and leave the rest behind. I think I like that. And I think that that's supported when she puts her hand on Buffy's head. Mm-hmm. And then there's the flash of light that happens. Yeah. Like she's transferring like her, her inner self. Yeah. Or what, one of the things that I, I, th- I like faith a lot. Um, I think faith as a person who has suffered trauma, it's one of the best depictions of, someone that has survived trauma mm-hmm. um, on television. I mean, it really is excellently done. Um, I've, I've said before, Faith gets one of my favorite scenes in the entire, in all of the Whedon verse. <laughs> she, she, we haven't gotten to it yet. It's in Angel of the Series, but. They, they nail it. Yeah. Like, I agree. Um, and And one of the things that I think that goes along with that, that how she deals with trauma and surviving trauma and existing in the world. One of the things that I think that she has is a lot of hope because when you're surrounded with people that are like terrible or that treat you terribly, like the thing that gets you like going out or looking for something different or something better or just anything at all is just hope that keeps you moving. And I think that could be one of the things that she gives to Buffy is that ability to keep having hope. Like she does eventually find, you know, a father that loves her, even if he's also a giant evil snake demon. I mean, we can't be picky. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, he's not while he loves her. That comes later. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, he is genuinely distressed. Like when he first goes to the apartment and sees the, you know, the remnants of the fight, he just keeps saying she'll be all right mm-hmm, yeah. over and over and over to himself, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to reassure himself. So, I mean, that hope, because when like Buffy wakes up, um, she says, I'm ready. Yeah. Ready for war. I war mm. again. Yeah. <laughs> Just like season seven. Just like season seven. Um, I can't believe with all the references we've already had to Buffy and a war and all that stuff. I can't believe that, uh, Ensley hasn't joined me on this podcast yet. Ensley, if you're listening, what the hell, man, come on. <laughs> um, okay. So let's, uh, I guess, I guess, I guess let... speaking of, of war, um, one of the things that I think is pretty interesting is that Xander's uh, soldier training oh, yeah. from Halloween. Hey, there's Halloween. There it is. Um, is central to his like part of Buffy's plan. And she keeps calling him the key. And I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Saying you're the key. You're the key figure. You're, and he says, I'm still key guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm embarrassed to admit that it wasn't until that line. It wasn't until he was being all like snarky with Angel. I'm hey, key guy's still talking here or whatever. It wasn't until that that I was like, oh, key, come on. <laughs> um, and again, there are so many. Like I, I, I just don't know how much 
of the specific details of what's coming up in future seasons Joss had in his mind at this point. I genuinely don't know if the character of Dawn and what Dawn is, he already knew at this point. So I don't know if the fact that they used the word key is just as deliberate a foreshadowing as the dream sequence. I don't know, but it seems like I it know. could be. It certainly seems like it could have been. Um, let's see. What else do we get? The, 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 the Wesley and Cordelia kiss. It's the most amazing thing ever. I mean, you talk about unresolved sexual tension. That's, that's, <laughs> that is the sex scene I want to talk about is the Wesley and Cordelia kiss. That was so incredibly awkward. It should have won an award. It really should have like, that must've been like, I don't know how they managed to get through that with a straight face. <laughs> like, it's so good. Yeah, man. Um, I can't imagine how many takes they had to do. <laughs> I wonder if they, yeah. So I've mentioned before on the podcast that apparently uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar and David Boreanaz have said that anytime they had to film like kissing scenes or whatever, one or the other of them was always trying to prank the other by finding the most heinous thing that they could possibly eat and put in their mouth before they would go and have their kissing scene just to mess with the other person. Um, so I find myself watching the, the Wes and Cordy kiss and I'm wondering has charisma card, like did charisma carpenter try that? Has she been on set long enough and know about this, that she tried to pull the same thing on Alexis <laughs> Denisoff? I don't know. Um, did that contribute to the, amazing acting of them being genuinely uncomfortable mashing their faces together like that. Um, that would be awesome. Thank you. It's, it's so fabulous. Like yeah. everything about it is fabulous. And uh, to, again, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe that. Um, like, I think that's it. I think, I think that wipes any, suggestion of there being anything between Wesley and Cordelia is com that's completely erased. I don't remember ever going forward in angel, well, the series that they address that there could even be a hint of anything between them. They are strictly coworkers <laughs> from now on, but they do kiss again in angel. Oh crap. Do they, they it's Cordelia tries to give him the the vision. Oh, you're right. And she doesn't say anything to him. Yeah. But it's not even then like this one. They've been going on for a while, yeah. like, you know, all lusty after each other. Um, but in Angel, there's there's no lead up to it or anything. It was almost just like, let's let's do this again. It was so great. <laughs> Yeah, doesn't she just like grab his face, kiss him, and then look at him for a second and go, no, nah, that didn't work, and walk away? Something yeah, like that, and he I was think. like, I thought it was better. <laughs> oh, oh, so they actually reference. They actually... Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, okay. Dang. All right. Um, <laughs> so, um, Oz. I want to say a few words about Oz, because um, obviously there's so many graduations that happen in these two episodes. One of One of the graduations that takes place is that Willow and Oz get to graduate their relationship to the next level. Yes. Um, and their sex scene is very, very different. It is from a uh, angel biting Buffy. It is. It's very <laughs> different. Um, thank goodness. 
Yes. Uh, because Oz Oz gets to panic, which is so adorable. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, I I have my favorites. I can't deny it. And Oz is one of my favorites. And I had forgotten, um, how many of the great Oz lines that I always remember. Like there there are certain quotes that I remember from characters forever, and I had forgotten that so many of them came from these two episodes. So in this, we not only get, um, Oz saying uh we attack the mayor with hummus which is i know right which is just one of the classics um damn i don't think i made a note of the other one maybe i'm just thinking of all of the of the dialogue leading up to the the willow and oz sex scene where he's and he gets to make the hummus comment twice because cordelia's like let's write germs on a box and chase the mayor around with it yeah. And he's like, the hummus plant's looking pretty good now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so great. Um, yeah, we attack the mayor with hummus. I should, oh, that's, that should be my next tattoo. No one would ever. <laughs> I have so many people <laughs> ask me, what is that, what's that tattoo on your arm mean? And I have to explain it. Just imagine if I had, let's attack the mayor with hummus. That's wonderful. Mm, Giles had the line, tea is soothing. I wish to be tense. That's always good. Um, oh, this I is... love that one. Yeah, this is the last appearance of the library, I believe. Yeah, I think I, I don't, I don't think we ever even get it in flashback. Um, do we see? I I don't remember season seven very well, so maybe you do. Um, I know in season seven they have occasion to go back to what's left of the high school. Do we see the remnants of the library? We see the remnants of the high school somewhere and we see the remnants of the library and something. And I think, I think, oh, do, when Riley goes to hide because he's all like souped up on military steroid vitamins or whatever, does he go hide in the shell of the library? Mm, I don't, I, he, he, he might. I don't remember. Well, as, as a, as a, but this is certainly the last time we see it intact. Yeah, as an intact, as a solid uh, structural <laughs> set, this is the grand finale of our beloved library. Um, I am, I'm super glad we at least got the scene. This is what the third time the library has been destroyed, and at least this time they had the presence of mind to get the books out first. Well, and I do like it was in um, it was in part one where Xander says, well, it's a good thing. Nobody ever wanted to check out any of these books. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I love it when the show is self-referential like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So the fight happens. Yes. And I will also say that um, watching this now, uh-huh. like this very specific fight and everything about it was the most cathartic thing ever. And I highly recommend it. Uh, How so? It filled me with so much joy because there is an evil politician Uh... who is trying to uh, literally kill everyone for his own ends and for power and the teenagers at the high school mount a rebellion and fight back. Yeah. That God, I can't believe. Okay. So on my other podcast, we, my co-host and I 
can never discuss anything without finding some reason to bring the garbage fire that is the real world into the discussion. We find we can draw parallels between anything we talk about and the the horrors that we are living through in the real world. So I am baffled why watching this episode of Buffy, it didn't dawn on me, oh, high school kids standing up to uh, a corrupt politician who's trying to destroy them. What what is wrong with me? Why didn't I see that? <laughs> well, it hit me particularly mm. hard because George is currently insane. Yeah. Um, and everybody like from everywhere ever is making their way to Georgia to campaign avidly, even as we speak. Mm. Like, uh, Trump is coming. Obama's coming. Oprah's coming. Will Ferrell is here. Mm. Like everyone, it, it's like, right? I mean, it's it's absolutely insane. Um, for our, our, in particular, our governor's race. Um, so, so watching, you know, the evil politician, um, and the students that's, and the students, like the thing that's so great about this is the parents, I mean, great in a cathartic way and how it mimics the real world. The parents all flee right, and just leave their kids to their own devices. Yeah. Like, and the kids are the ones that get up and, you know, surprise, we're completely armed. That, and, is, a, that is a great scene. It's a genuinely moving scene. I didn't, I didn't, my, my mind didn't go to the place that yours did. Mine should have, but it didn't. But I just love the scene of them all throwing their gowns off. And they're like, particularly Jonathan is there with a double bladed ax strapped to his chest. I was like, you go, yes. Jonathan, you go. It is, it is so awesome. It's, it's always been awesome, like for me. Um, but it was even, even more so this time, like when Buffy yells now, and I do particularly enjoy like Xander directing the battle, like (laughs) his, you know, all of his military experience, it seems to be summed up into like archers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like (laughs) he, he does get one line where he's, uh, he he's saying something about left flank but over there right flank do this and then he's like and clearly the kids at that point have started panicking and are running everywhere and he's like i, I don't remember what he says but it's something like bill george you're the right flank <laughs> whatever like <laughs> the kids don't get it the, the thing that is cool though is that he's like buffy's military lieutenant uh-huh. and it's a role that we don't generally see xander in like buffy's still the general but he gets to be like her right hand man yeah um in a fight yeah i mean i think i feel like they call on that a couple more times in the series um yeah but and i and i know that things continue into the comics the less said about that the better um i'm not a fan yeah, of the comics. I, i'm behind <laughs> uh we get wesley so so um anya doesn't get to take part in the fight that i remember Mm-mm. but wesley does kind of and and um I, I love the reveal when the vampires all turn to run and there's angel and standing right next to him in a precursor of greatness to come is my beloved wesley side by side with angel that's pretty fabulous yeah uh it doesn't last very long for wesley he he pretty soon ends up being a a whimpering mess on the ground but still 
I adore you, Wesley. Uh, we get <laughs> we get to see we get to see Harmony uh, get bitten by by a vamp, which yep. who knows? Maybe that means something. I don't know. I don't know where that's going. Well, and Cordelia stakes a vampire. Yeah, is that the first time? It might be. Uh, she's been involved in so many fights at this point, but I when I when that happened, I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen Cordelia actually be the one to stake a vampire. So that was cool. Um, and Jonathan, again, I, I have my weaknesses. Jonathan tries to protect Cordelia when the school explodes. It's kind of a silly scene. So, so when you mentioned the kids all like throwing off their robes and, and, you know, Buffy says now, and the kids all show that they're here to fight. That's a fantastic scene. I was like, yes, yes. I loved that scene. And there are other great things about the, the final battle, but, um, the, it's kind of silly. <laughs> the, the, the effects aren't that good. I mean, I get it. It's 1999 on a TV budget. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not knocking the show for it, but some of, some of it is a little bit silly. And I, I love the scene that I'm talking about because Jonathan little stupid Jonathan, who has been so picked on and goes on to, to whatever Jonathan goes on to, um, he gets a moment where, he at least like tries to protect Cordelia from this massive explosion. But the scene is a little bit goofy because the massive explosion is a bunch of kids standing, uh, standing there and looking off camera as someone turns on a really bright light. (laughs) That's all. That's all it was. I was like, uh, you couldn't even shake the camera. You couldn't even fake that there was an explosion happening, but whatever. Um, so I have my, uh, my book, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Slayer Stats, the complete inco- infographic guide to all things Buffy. Yes, on my yes. desk today, and I can tell you that yes, that is where uh, Cordelia stakes her first vampire. Yes, awesome. So awesome. <laughs> Good job, Miss Chase. Better late than Yay. never. Better late than never. Um, okay. The effects not are less than special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, I don't know. What uh, what else have you got? Um, we have uh, Larry is killed. We've got that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Principal Schneider too. He's eaten. He is. Yeah, finally standing up to the mayor. I I guess. I suppose he gets. Yeah. I, I guess that counts barely as Snyder's redemption. As he finally puts his foot down. I mean, it's still for stupid, selfish reasons, but whatever. Do you think the mayor was always going to kill him? Because there's the scene earlier when he's like, uh, this town owes you a debt, Principal Snyder, and you can rest assured that the the books are going to be balanced on that count. I promise you, you will get your reward or whatever. It all sounds very sinister, but it's also the mayor. And he, in his own twisted way, has demonstrated that, you know, he's kind of loyal and he does right by his his foolish minions if they do right by him. So do you think if Snyder hadn't, like if Snyder had just seen the world going to hell and the mayor turned into a giant snake, if he had just been on board and not started shouting at the mayor, would he still have eaten Snyder? Um, maybe not right away. <laughs> I mean, Snyder being Snyder, he would have gotten eaten sooner or later. You're absolutely right. Like, I feel that the snake violates the, well, I don't know. I mean, he certainly dislikes kids 
enough and the mayor was going to eat them all. Right. So, I mean, given enough time, he might have gotten on board. But he does. I do think that he he does kind of have it in for the principal. Like, and I'm not, I mean, that speech does sound like sinister Mm -hmm. without being sinister in that mayor kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that, like, his reward is going to be getting eaten. I think it's more of a treat for the mayor than it is for the principal. And and for us as the viewers, let's be fair. (laughs) Um, So what is the... What is the Joss Whedon connection between uh, Mayor Wilkins and Steve Rogers, Captain America? <laughs> because this, oh is my the, God. <laughs> this is the this is the weirdest connection I'm ever going to make in the course of this podcast. So just bear with me. And I don't I don't have anything more than just a one off joke to make here. But the mayor, but I want to hear this. The mayor, great. <laughs> the mayor at one point while he's sort of telling his his vamp minions, you know, this is how it's going to be, this is what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. He says, and boys, let's watch the swearing. And that just immediately made me think of Captain America in uh, in Avengers, was it Age of Ultron? Where one of, the, I, don't, I don't even remember who at this point, but one of the Avengers says, damn, or shit, or whatever. And, and Steve Rogers is like, language! And that just becomes the running joke that Captain America doesn't want them to use bad words. Oh, that's great. I, I there it is. I've I've tied so so the Avengers films are an alternate universe take on the Captain America are on the on the Buffy verse. And uh <laughs> Steve Rogers is actually an alternate version of the mayor. No, I don't I, that's nothing. That's nothing. Ignore me. No, but that's wonderful cuz I mean that's I mean that's Captain Rogers like is not from the now and really neither is the mayor. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah. It's tapping into that whole uh, Ward Cleaver vibe for comedic effect. Yeah, it's great. And yeah. I guess actually it's not really the now anymore. It's the then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, okay. The now-ish. The now-ish. The was. The recently was. <laughs> recently was. <laughs> I like recently was. Uh, so I had forgotten that, um, once he ascends, uh, the mayor still gets to deliver one last line. I'd forgotten the whole, well, gosh, is that what he says? Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, gosh, when he realizes he's about to blow up. It's like, well, gosh, or well, golly. Yeah. Something like that. Um, um, well, and before, like right before that, when Buffy's taunting him with the knife, she says, want to get it back from me? Dick. Dick. I know. That was a, I mean. Was was that a weird line delivery or just a weird line? I got, it, I, I get it. I get it. It stands out to me. Yeah. It seems like it's too easy. Yeah. Like for a, a quip. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. And I mean, she didn't really like, I don't know. Calling mayor Wilkins doesn't see, calling him a dick. Doesn't seem like something that would have especially pissed him off. I think it was all just the fate's blood on this knife thing. I think that was probably enough to taunt him, but. Yeah. Whatever. She's, she's a 17, 18 year old girl. I get it. Um, fire bad tree pretty. Another line I'd complete. I never remember that that comes from here. Me neither. I was like, this is where it is. I need to like write down that this is the episode. I've, you know, I actually, I always think that that line is from beer bad. I do too. <laughs> I always think that that's something that sort of caveman, uh, Buffy says. I, Okay, now I'm having this weird flash. Does she say that? Is that a line that gets repeated by Caveman Buffy? I don't think so. Um, 
I don't know. I can hear you typing away. <laughs> One of us on this podcast needs to do Thank some research. Thank God for Google. Yeah. Um, um, oh, it's so unhelpful. Uh, There's so it's, many hits. It's fine. It's fine. Um, I, I'm probably completely misremembering that. But I absolutely, when she said it in this, I was like, holy crap, this is like almost a full season earlier than I remembered that line popping up. Um, and Oz gets another great line with the whole, which uh, for some reason I also forgot came from here, but given what the line is, I really don't know why I ever thought it came from anywhere else. When he's like, guys, take a moment to deal with this. We survived. No, not the battle high school. Yeah. I love that. That's a great line. We're taking a moment and we're done. Okay. Uh, it's the see. only like it's the only Oz line that I wrote down because if I were left I otherwise I would just be writing down everything that he said. Right. Um I mean Willow earlier calls him uh ironic detachment guy, which is great. Yes. That. And he said, "Oh, that's what that was the other Oz line I had forgotten came from here. Our lives are different than other people's." Yes. That was the line he gives. <laughs> Um, all right. So I've just got, uh, I've just got some little bits and bobs here that we haven't discussed yet. Aside from, uh, I guess the two, the only two big things I have left to talk about are my, my nerdy need to, for, for like a, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer monster manual, like an official monster manual. Um, as has surely been made clear to listeners of this podcast by this point, I sometimes get a little hung up on details. <laughs> I, <laughs> I spent, I spent uh, like 20 plus years just buried in role-playing games, D and D and, and all that, all those games for, for two decades. Uh, and as that, as that type of nerd, I was very, very enmeshed in the the study and application of complicated rules and numbers and charts and, and comparing stats and all that kind of stuff. That just is part and parcel with tabletop role-playing games. Um, and for a lot of people, that was at least half of the fun of role-playing games. So it's just, it's, it's obviously it's impossible for me to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer and not try to not try to make the exceedingly convoluted, and sort of and and contradictory details of supernatural biology cosmology all that stuff not try to find some structure for all of that so i watch episodes like these where anya is explaining to them that like they've never really seen a demon before um because like everything you've seen all the demons you've fought are actually just human demon hybrids the real demons the true demons are something much bigger and and all that so that immediately starts raising questions in my head. Like we've seen demons in hell dimensions in Anne, we saw them go to the, the factory dimension, the Nazi factory dimension or whatever. Uh -huh. And all those demons looked pretty humanoid to me at some point later in the series. I don't remember. I don't remember if it's Buffy. Oh no, it's angel. It's, it's in an episode of angel. We get, we, I think it's when they go to Pylea and we get to see what the demon inside angel looks yeah. like the demon that makes him a vampire pretty human i mean it's got it's it's human in the uh the star trek alien sort of way it's humanoid um 
yeah, I don't know. So th this, it's just more of me asking, well, how do vampires work? What is a soul? Like <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, that's why I'm so nitpicky about it because of 20 years of, of crunching numbers and reading monster manuals and, and players handbooks and stuff. Well, it's kind of interesting because, like, the the demon and angel that comes out in Palia, like, I would have expected that to look a little bit more like the Turrican. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, is it the Turrican supposed to be, like, more of the vampiest vampire? Yeah, they call them the uber vamps, I guess. Yeah. But instead, angel's completely different. He really looks, he really was, that was before... Okay, the Pylea stuff, that was before the end of season seven, right? Of Buffy. Um, yes, because when they get back from Pylea, so it must be around season five, because when they get back from Pylea, Willow's waiting. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Okay, so they so they had not they hadn't designed the Turrican yet, but That's true. But you're right, in a in a cohesive world with an official monsters <laughs> manual like I want, uh I guess he should have looked a lot more like the Tur like the Turrican, the Uber Vamps. Uh but instead he looked very uh Star Trek Klingon alien like human with facial prosthetics. But And there's and and the way that different vampires look and manifest is also really interesting. Like the master doesn't change his face. Right. And what's up with the anointed one? <laughs> yeah. What is up with the anointed one? That's a, that's a big question. And then, uh, is it, Oh, Kakistos, um, yeah. was another super old vampire. And the way they showed how old he was is he had, didn't he have cloven hooves? Yes. So, yeah, vampires are obviously not, I, I would think at least that that means vampires are not a single source, uh, like, they have they have a very convoluted family tree, I guess is where I'm going. And the relationship of the, the human personality to the vampire demon parasite mm -hmm. inhabitant mm -hmm. like is also really interesting too because that morphs back and forth a little bit dude major hang up of mine major <laughs> yeah if, if if i were to ever work <laughs> up the nerve uh to to dare try and submit anything to slayage uh it, it would have to be I, i'm just genetically predisposed for it to be about that that's <laughs> the only thing i want to write about <sighs> So. It would be cool to also have like, like a chart or some sort of visual guide to show how vampirism changes. Maybe it changes. Maybe it maybe it evolves and it's changing over time since the first demon vampire. Oh, and this comes back in the comics. Oh no! Oh no! It does. That's all I'm gonna say. Okay. All right. Well, I, most of the feedback I've gotten regarding the, yes, sweetie, they can hear you. You're on the podcast. Um, <laughs> most of the feedback from my listeners that I've gotten regarding the comics has been positive. I feel like most of the reader, most of the readers, most of the listeners who have said anything to me have told me, you know, at, at the very least, they've said the comics get better. They may start out 
not great, but they, they eventually get better. I, I only read season 10 and couldn't stand it and haven't gone any further. Um, I did the same thing. And finally enough people were like, no, just read. And so I kept reading and it does, it does get better. Well, and but now it's about to reboot or whatever. Uh, I evidently that like room has been made for that to happen. So I'm curious to see. Oh, so you're what they do. So it's not going to be a true, like they're not going to, it's not going to be the story of Buffy. Oh no, no. I'm not even talking about the show. I'm not talking about the show. Oh, you're still okay. No, the comics have been so, so dark horse lost the license for Buffy. And I think it's Boom Studios, the the comic company Boom Studios. I think they're the ones who are picking it up. Um, so they will be publishing the Buffy comics from now on, and it is starting over. Like I, I oh, don't what I don't I don't remember if the comics are starting over. I crap. I think actually they are. I think they're starting over from the beginning of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's not picking up where the Dark Horse comics left off. It's not. It's not even picking up where the season seven left off and telling new uh, new comic based stories. I think it is starting. I think it's actually retelling from the beginning the Buffy the Vampire Slayer story. I th- oh, I'm totally flaring my nostrils right now. <laughs> I, think, I don't. I, 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 oh dear. I, I'll do some research before the next episode, and listeners, if, if you know better than that, please let me know. But I, I think that's what I read. So, uh, yeah. Mm. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, there's there's been some. I've also been flaring my nostrils over what the TV show was going to be. There's still, I think, some conflicting information, but near as I can tell. I, I think they've mostly confirmed that it's not going to be a reboot. It's not. It's not going to be what the comics are going to be now. It's not retelling Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They're not recasting Buffy Summers. It's going to be new stories with new characters. I think. I mean, I have a lot of trepidation, but I'm going to watch. Oh yeah, like, and I, we're all going to watch you know, it. <laughs> uh, but. I mean, it might not. I might let everybody else watch some first. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, we'll see. Yeah. Like, um, all right. So really quickly, we just hit 90 minutes, which is my that's my that's the zone I always aim for in these. But uh, just because I made the reference earlier about there are so many types of graduations that happen. I just want to kind of run down this list. Obviously, there's uh, so. Buffy graduates from the need of having a watcher. Yes. Oh, that's the other big thing that happens that we didn't really discuss at all. Yeah. Yeah. That she just quits the council. Um, which was a great moment because it involved my dear, dear beloved Wesley, but, uh, it was a great moment that felt, um, I, I don't know where I'm going with this. It felt earned. Like, yeah, she she could have done it earlier with uh, with Quentin, with Quentin Travers and all that. And in, in fact, um, after the whole cruciamentum thing or whatever, when she was depowered, she probably should have. <laughs> that's that's yeah. probably when she should have quit. But, um, w- you know, we do get the great line of Wesley saying this is mutiny. I prefer to think of it as graduation. Great line. Yeah, great line. 
Uh, <clears throat> I already mentioned Willow and Oz graduating their romantic relationship. Anya, um, I guess, graduates or may or at least maybe begins to graduate. Maybe she's held back a year. Uh, held back a year. I don't know. <laughs> In my notes, I said Anya graduates from uh, the sort of liminal state of being a former demon pretending to be human into the slightly less liminal state of human learning to be more human, less demonic. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, because she graduates into human emotion. Yeah. Because yeah. she she says like this is terrible. Yeah. Welcome. And to the Xander's world like, great, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fine, I hope you die. Aren't we going to kiss? Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, the mayor attempts to graduate to the ultimate stage of his own demonic evolution. Doesn't quite go the way he planned. Um, if the ascension had been successful, and and if she hadn't already been stabbed in the kidney, uh, Faith would have graduated from being sort of flunky or minion to the right-hand man of the new Dark Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, obviously, Angel graduates to his own damn series. Yes. So I think I don't know. I think Faith still graduates in a way. Like it's so like because of the her, dream sequence. Because of the coma. Because of the like, coma. Because she gets taken out of herself mm-hmm. in a way. Like I, I'm, and this is going back to a bunch of like Sacred Heart stuff I haven't really thought through. Okay. Um, because there's no need for her to be in a coma. She got stabbed in the gut, not in the face. They, like, they the doctors make some offhand reference. You can barely hear it in the background. They're like the bones, the bones have been set, and uh, the something like the the internal bleeding has been stopped, but the head trauma is pretty severe. Like they say something about head trauma. Yeah. So you're supposed to believe that what actually put her in the coma is her falling two stories into the back of a truck. But she didn't fall on her head. Right. She fell very like nicely on her back. Right. You know, thus not, you know, upsetting her wound anymore. Does the series, I genuinely don't remember. Does the series, when she comes back, is it ever, is it ever explained that it was not, that it was some sort of Slayer protective coma? Like, is it ever explained as anything else, or or is this it? Is she just had head trauma and went into a coma? She just went into a coma. Okay. Head so it, trauma, stabbing, blood loss. Okay. Clearly, I, coma stuff. I, I couldn't remember, and actually now I kind of, I, I'm kind of sad that they don't explain it as. It was some. It was tied into her being a slayer. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, and then and then she just wakes up like and with that the dream that they have and the passing of the, you know whatever gets passed along with the the light. Um, I feel that it is some sort of like graduation for her too. I'm not entirely sure like in in what way, but I mean it's. It's so weird that she's Faith with the Sacred Heart and the knife through it that got stabbed in the gut and has had all of this stuff and has been trying to, like, find her way. And then she's put into a coma where she is, for all practical purposes, dead Mm -hmm. for quite some time. And then she comes back. Now, I'm not saying that Faith is a Christ figure, <laughs> but she got stabbed in the side. Oh, look at you. Ish. Look at you. All right. 
yeah. you know, I, I, I think there's, there's, there's things there that are resonating that I haven't like parsed out. Okay. Okay. Inter- that's but interesting. But I think she's going to a, a different level. I mean, cause when she comes back and she has the body swap device, she specifically decides to swap with Buffy. Yeah. And that's when like her real epiphanies come out. Yeah. Like she can't realize these things about herself or her life or her self hatred until after she's come out of the coma and walked in Buffy's literal skin. So earlier when you were talking about the dream sequence and you referenced the, the, uh, the passing of something, I think you were talking about how she passes a, a sense of peace or whatever on to, to Buffy and the light uh, yeah. the scene transitions with the light and everything. As I was watching that, I didn't necessarily take that as a, as a literal like passing. Like I, I was, I wasn't reading that as s- some actual piece of faith has just literally been transferred into Buffy. And I don't know if that's there or not. Um, but I, I was thinking as I was watching that dream sequence and the, the sort of dream faith, which I don't think we're meant to believe is just a figment of Buffy's imagination. Like this isn't Buffy having a dream. And so this is her interpreting faith. I think these are both slayers. Like it's them in this dream sequence. She says like, like, is this your head or mine? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I, I thought it was interesting watching that and that, the the dream faith or whatever really has a sense of sort of peace like like her fight with buffy and going into the coma and all that experiencing that trauma she's in a different place right now she's much more peaceful and and calm and yet so as i was watching that my thought was then why when she wakes up from her coma is she still so pissed off <laughs> like she's still she's even more pissed off and and goes after Buffy even harder. Um, but maybe I'm really reaching here, but I'm thinking maybe either real or metaphorical, that flash of light and the passing of peace. That was the, that was the, the new sense of peace that faith had found in her coma. She passed that on to Buffy because Buffy needed it for the coming fight. Uh, and so she doesn't have it. Faith doesn't have it anymore. So she wakes up without that sense of peace. That would make sense. I mean, passing like those best parts of herself on Mm -hmm. and then she wakes up without them and she doesn't realize like what's left until she's in Buffy's skin. And I mean, also like the transferring of mystical things is so Buffy verse. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, you've got the, the, the visions. Yeah. You were just talking about, you were just talking about the Wesley and Cordelia kiss. Yeah. Like, and I mean, when Buffy and Angel have sex, he loses his soul. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a problem. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's precedent. Yeah. These are smart shows, guys. I don't know if, I don't know if anyone has talked about this before, but <laughs> these shows are pretty smart. Um, oh, I almost forgot one more graduation. The mutant enemy guy at the end. That's right. Gets to wear the little graduation cap. Yay. Yay. I swear to God, that mutant enemy guy has a name and I can never, I can never find what it is or remember. But I, I thought, 
I thought he had been named at some point, but the only reference I can ever find to him is they just refer to him as the mutant enemy. I know of no name for him. Okay, I may have completely made that up as I make up half of the stuff I say <laughs> I'm on the podcast. <laughs> anyways, so um, I think that was all I had. Anything that we didn't get to talk about that you you want to address? I don't think so. Okay. I think I've got everything even in my notes. Um like we've we've discussed. Okay. Awesome. Um well this was fantastic and uh God bless you for being here. You were great. You are I can't remember if you've signed up for any future episodes, but as I keep telling my guests, when I like them, when I like my guests, I tell them they're <laughs> they are welcome back anytime. So uh just let me know if you're not already signed up for something, just let me know if there's another thing you want to talk about. Um I I have decided to remain to continue with my initial plan of doing angel after I'm completely done with Buffy. That means that angel is still Sweet. angel is still largely unspoken for very few people have, have gone far enough into the future to sign off on uh, angel. So that's a pretty wide open market. If there's anything in angel you want to talk about, just let me know. Okay, cool. I think I've signed up for stuff in season seven. Okay. Um, I'll double check, but this is so much fun. And this is such a great podcast. This was okay. Not to toot my own horn, but, uh, am I correct? Did you tell me this is your very first podcast? Yes. Yes. That I've, I've, you know, been on, I've listened. That is, but I've not participated. That is awesome. I'm terribly sorry that it was with me, but thank you so much for joining the world of podcasting. Oh, I'm so excited. It was with you. Yay. Yay. And it was about Buffy. Yay! Uh, so, yeah, thanks for being here. Um, I give all my guests a chance, an opportunity, if they want, to let my listeners know how to find them online. Um, you can find me on Twitter at technopoesis.com. Oh, my goodness. Um, that's T-E-C-H-N-O-P-O-E-S-I-S. Um, and I'm on Facebook. And I'm on Instagram, although my Instagram handle, of course, is totally different. It's Notorious V-I-C, because I think I'm hilarious. Oh, notorious, that is hilarious. like knitting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's beautiful. I like it. Um, all right. So I'm going to add all of the – I'm not on Instagram, but I'll, I'll add the Facebook and uh, Twitter thing to my feeds. I am embarrassed that I don't already follow you on either of those. I don't think. Do I follow you on Facebook? No, we're friends on Facebook now. We just did that. We just did that. I'm so, I am so with it, man. I am on top of this podcasting game. Um, yeah, I'll follow you on Twitter. Uh, I, you don't have to follow me because I'm a terrible person on Twitter. So you don't need to follow me back. Um, most of my tweets is really just my Instagram. Although I'm trying this new thing on Twitter where I'm doing, um, I'm doing, wait, Florilegium. Which is a, it's a method of reading texts from uh, how you would read a sacred text from divinity practices. And so it's so cool. You write down all of the things that jump out at you, thus creating like a new text in your notebook. And like medieval monks would create florilegiums of phrases or words that jumped out of them. That is... as they were reading um and the phrases that jump out at you are called sparklets oh my gosh <laughs> this is this is amazing 
Now I have a whole new rabbit hole to go down, a, br- a whole new podcast to create. Damn it. Why have you done this to me? <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, man. All right. Um, well, thank you again for joining me, and uh, I will have you back, absolutely. And thank you all at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Other people have beat me to the Buffy podcast punch, so if you could just say some kind words about me, even if you have to lie. No, don't lie. So tell the truth, but I would prefer if it was nice, if it was a nice truth, uh, just to help me stand out from the crowd. I, I could use all the help I can get. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've talked about, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com, follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the Facebook group, which is, you guessed it, say it with me, Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. Uh, <laughs> next time, <laughs> next time uh, we put away childish things uh, as we leave behind the smoking rubble-filled hellhole that was high school. Uh, for the much more mature and responsible hellhole that will be college. Season season four finds our heroes, or some of them anyways, uh, uh, in campus housing at UC Sunnydale. So I'll let the drug, alcohol, and 20-something experimentation metaphors begin as I'm joined by somebody still unconfirmed guest at this point to discuss episodes 401, The Freshman, 402, Living Conditions, and 403, The Harsh Light of Day. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Thinking all the time when everything was right. Thinking all the time with only you and I. Makes me sorry that it had to end that way. Learn my lesson now, there's nothing left to say. Graduation day. Oh, Graduation day, oh, oh, graduation day.